Good morning, Paul. Good uh, Oh, uh, wait, you, you are not Paul. Oh, what are you doing here, Michael? Your, your appointment is, uh, your appointment is not till next week, Michael. Yeah, Dr. Haranmir Worshipper, I, I actually wanted to talk to you about Paul. Uh, really, you did? Uh, wait, uh, where is Paul? Uh, that, that, that's not important right now. That's just really not important right now. You see, I, I believe that Paul, and, and I hate saying this because he's such a nice guy, Paul is faking his DCOCD. What? Why, why do you think Paul is, as you say, faking his DCOCD, Michael? Well, I can say this because, <laughs> believe me, I have genuine DCOCD. Or, as I like to call it, CCDDO. And it's stronger, faster, and more intense than what Paul has. Uh, now, now, Michael, my friend, my friend, look, you know I've been treating you for your chronic PPS, your perpetual podcasting syndrome, and for your SMF Superman fever, but. Superman is one word. Michael, you must not be jealous. There are plenty of these conditions to share around, which is good and bad. Bad because I feel sorry for your people. Good because business is booming. Anyway, look, I know people with fire and water fever. Uh, there's a lovely couple with crippling xenozoic xenofixation. Uh, there are a lot of comic book afflictions for everyone, Mike. Okay. If you're sure, I mean, uh, props for for xenozoic xenofixation, which I can't even say. Good, good job. Well, you're the doctor, I guess. But uh, I, I better go uh, because, yeah, Paul. I just remembered I left something in my trunk. Uh, oh. Uh, uh, well, look, we, we call it a boot here. This is an Australian podcast. But okay, Michael. Uh, look, fine. You go take care of your your. Thing and I will see you next week at your appointment. Yeah, I'm in Australia. Something might kill me on the way back to the car. But yeah, I'll see you next week. I've got a friend who's a purebred killing machine. He said he's waited his whole DCOCD, the DC Events Podcast, where we're looking at every single DC event from Crisis on Infinite Earths in order, all the way up to, I don't know where we're going to get to at this stage, but today we have got to the year 2001 and we are looking at Our Worlds at War, the big event from that year, and it is a Superman event, and if it's Superman, you kind of have to invite this gentleman, Michael Bailey. (laughs) Thank you, sir. It's a pleasure being uh, a guest on this show. I have enjoyed every episode. Oh, that's very good. Yeah, uh, Michael is joining me. We're going to cover every single thing about this. So what's Our Worlds at War about, Mike? Well, Our Worlds at War is about a being known as Empiriax has shown up to do what most cosmic-level beings do, which is destroy everything. An unlikely alliance of the heroes of Earth, led by Superman, of course, President Lex Luthor, an alliance of alien races that Empiriax has attacked, and Darkseid join forces to stop him. Losses are suffered, including Aquaman and Hippolyta, but the Alliance manages to stop Imperiax. Just as victory is in sight, Brainiac 13, there is so much to explain about this very, very brief synopsis, uh, who had been secretly feeding Luther intel, comes in at the end and absorbs Imperiax's power. A fractured alliance must come together again to stop Brainiac 13 from conquering the entire universe. Wow. Yeah, that's that's it in a nutshell. Yeah, there's a lot of creators on this one, isn't there? Oh, good lord, yes, because this was uh this was not only something that affected uh like the DC universe as a whole, but you had four Superman titles at the time. So you had four Superman writers to deal with, uh including Jeff Loeb, Joe Casey, Mark Schultz. 
Hi, uh, Ruth and Darren, uh, and Joe <laughs> Kelly. Uh, you also had writers like Peter David and Ed Brubaker, Phil Jimenez, uh, and Jeff Johns coming in and writing various specials. And uh, Jed Winnick. Can't, can't forget to mention Jed Winnick, ah. uh, as he was the Green Lantern writer at the time. And uh, the, are we going to attempt to summarize who the art team are, or is that, <laughs> is that a bridge too far? I, I think the main art team uh, would be considered on the Superman titles, which was Ed McGinnis on Superman, Mike Roringo on Adventures of Superman, Doug Monkey on Superman the Man of Steel, and uh, Kano, fresh off his uh, battle with Luke Cage, uh, jumped on to uh, who was drawing a sort of. Okay, so the art team on Action Comics is weird because it was like the most fluid of all of the Superman titles at the time. Like Kano did a lot of the books, but you also had Yannick Paquette and a bunch of other people coming in every once in a while. But Kano pretty much drew the issues from this uh, from the three months that this storyline took place over. Right. And yeah, as you said, three months and basically there were all the Superman books, but there were 10 specials that they did basically to show what different teams or heroes were uh, doing during our Worlds at War. So there's a Green Lantern special, Young Justice, JLA, JSA, Batman, Flash, Wonder Woman, World's Finest, Harley Quinn. We're in the era of Harley Quinn existing as a comic and Nightwing. And uh, as far as tie-in issues, there were 26 issues. So, I mean, there wasn't really a core miniseries with this. It was all over the place. Yeah, and I actually think that kind of hurt it uh, in, a, in a way because... There was no, even though the Superman books were kind of, the, like I said, the centralized uh, place for the story to take place, and all of the specials that you just mentioned were where you got to see how the different characters were affected by it. I, I think not having an Our Worlds at War 1 through 4, plus the Secret Files and Origin, which they did have, kind of made it a jumbled reading experience mm. and uh, can i say as someone who hadn't read every single superman book leading into this uh, event uh the secret files is a real letdown it really does not give you what you need to get through this event no it, it's, it's so weird imperiax actually showed up for the first time in 99 uh, it was right after the superman titles had gone through an editorial shift joey cavalieri had been editing the books for about three or four years by that point. And uh, DC, I guess, decided that they needed fresh blood. So they brought in a guy that I don't like to say his name because of uh, uh, certain things. But he brought in Jeff Loeb, who at that point was mainly known for in comic book circles for writing Batman specials and uh, several of the X titles like Cable and X-Force. Uh, in addition to writing such classic films as Commando and Teen Wolf. And he brought in Jeff Loeb and Joe Kelly, who had been kind of making a name for himself on, on titles like Deadpool and X-Men. Mark Schultz. Hi, Ruth and Darren. Uh, you know, were, was really known for, like, you know, the Xenozoic Tales and uh, was kind of more of an indie. But he had actually been writing Superman the Man of Steel for about a year before the shift. And then Adventures of Superman was all over the place. You had Stuart Immerman doing plots with Mark Miller doing script. And then uh, J.M. DeMatteis came on for a little while. And finally, they settled into Joe Casey, uh, who had some Superman cred in a way because he had written the Mr. Majestic series from Wildstorm. And you had like right at the beginning of Jeff Loeb's run of Superman, he decided he was going to power Superman up a little bit and he brought in this threat of Imperiax and it was like what almost two years later where they finally paid that story off so you did have almost two years worth of Superman stories leading into this and God help you if you didn't know about President Lex. Yeah, yeah. that's one I knew about, so I was all across the President Lex stuff. The Brainiac 13 stuff was kind of... I hadn't read any of the intro into that. I, I think I've read some of the later stuff with it. So where, what's going on? And Strange Visitor, can you explain these characters to me? <laughs> okay, Strange Visitor, who plays a, a, a key role in this, was actually the character Kismet. Yeah, I remember Kismet. Back uh, right before the death of Superman, Jerry Ordway introduced a Marvel-esque cosmic-level character named Kismet. Uh, and 
right before the editorial shift, they did a storyline where she took human form, but she needed a containment vessel. So they put her in the electric blue Superman outfit. And it was really developed by Ron Friends and uh, I think his brother. I forget his name. I do apologize. I didn't write that down. But they did a little storyline where she gets her, her own body, basically. They were going to spin that off into something, and it never went anywhere. So she was just kind of in the periphery. Brainiac 13 was a virus from the future that attacked <laughs> that attacked Metropolis on December 31st, 1999. So, of course, the storyline was called Y2K. Ah. And through the course of the story... Superman and Lex kind of team up to stop Brainiac 13 and to kind of settle everything out. Lex actually gave up his daughter, Lena, uh, who he had had with the Contessa uh, several years before. And Metropolis was turned into this city of the future where everything from the buildings to the vehicles to... Uh, all technology was jumped forward to the century that Brainiac 13 came from. So like sa- sandwich presses, toasters? Yeah, just like everything. Uh, I hated that era. I, I and, and the reason why I hated that era is I'm of the opinion that Superman should be the most fantastic thing in his world. And I realize that his world includes like the DC Universe and you kind of accept that. But in the Superman books themselves... I don't want to see Superman against a futuristic landscape because then you have fantastic on top of fantastic. And it's not that Superman seems less fantastic. It's just for my tastes. I was just like, yeah, this is weird. And they, they stuck with that for good God, almost five years. Uh, so, but Brainiac 13 was just this villain in the periphery. So at the beginning of this storyline, when the green skinned blonde woman comes and, and talks to Lex that's Lena. So this is Brainiac 13 kind of reinserting himself into the story. Uh, all right. Is that his daughter? Lex's daughter? Yeah, that that is Lex's daughter. Gee, Supergirl got that wrong, didn't they? <laughs> yes, yes, they did. Who's the mother? Sorry. The mother was uh, a, a character... Let's see if I can get this. Contessa Erica Alexandria de Portenza. I don't have it written down in front of me. She was a character that came into the Superman books right around 1995. Uh, it was a time period. God, there's just <laughs> thank you for coming to my TED talk, everybody. Uh, Lex had at one point uh, developed cancer and was dying. So he cloned his body and had his brain transferred into that cloned body, who, which is the uh, Amish looking Lex you see during the death of Superman storyline. And eventually that body started breaking down and Lex went crazy and tried to destroy Metropolis and was basically a vegetable for uh, about a year or so before he made a deal with leading back to a previous episode of the show, uh, the demon Naren, uh, during Underworld Unleashed to become a uh, whole person again. But in the background, this character named the Contessa had come in and taken over LexCorp and eventually she and Lex met, fell in love, and had a kid. And pretty much as soon as she, Lex had that kid, he shipped Contessa off. And eventually he killed her. Yeah. Uh, right after he was elected president, he basically had her killed. Secretly, of course. It's not like it was an executive order. But, uh, yeah, so she was uh, very, very much dead by this point, and by the time he gave Lena up. Wow, okay. Um, there'll be a quiz at the end of this for everybody. <laughs> yeah, I was about to say. <laughs> All right, you're a detail guy, uh, Michael, so can you step back and say what are the biggest things for you in this book, uh, in this event, the best moments? Now, when we say best, I'm going to define that as uh, for, at first as the biggest moments. You had the death of Lois Lane's father. Uh, who was the Secretary of Defense at this point. Uh, and and here is where I would say that the early issues of Superman leading into the battle with Imperiax were actually better than the battle itself, because I think they did a fantastic job of kind of laying the groundwork that something huge is coming and something bad. So you had him as kind of a major figure then, so when he died, 
and it was a choice uh, between for Superman to save Lo- uh, her Lois's father or Wonder Woman that it led to a dramatic moment. Uh, Aquaman died during this storyline, but blink and you'll miss that because it's it's not the most heroic of major hero deaths, uh, and was almost immediately undone. <laughs> yeah. By the end of it, they're basically saying that Aqualad made him disappear and all of Atlantis. And that was editorial, because Ah. they wanted to kill Aquaman. Sorry, Rob. And the higher-ups at DC were like, no, wait, we have a movie in development. We can't can't do that. Uh, And this would be around the time period that they were probably thinking of the... um, Mercy Reef pilot as well. Uh, uh, this, is, this is right before Smallville. This is right before a lot of things, actually. Uh, the death of uh, Wonder Woman's mother was actually, I think, the most poignant of deaths because the Wonder Woman issues that led up to and took place during Worlds of War, Worlds at War, our Worlds at War, O-W-A-W, <laughs> uh, were really kind of uh, Phil Jimenez did a fantastic job of, of setting up their new dynamic since there was a shakeup on Paradise Island right before this. So her dying was kind of, I think, the biggest deal outside of Lois's dad. But I think there were some really good moments in this. Superman kind of teaming up with Doomsday at one point was, uh, was interesting. Uh, Superman powering up at the very end with, uh, you know, coming, absorbing strange visitor and then flying into the sun and uh, super powering up to take on Brainiac 13. I just, I think there was a lot of great action moments. I just also think that if you read this entire story as a whole, there's a lot of fat to be trimmed. Yep, yep. And Sergeant Rock died is that right or yeah but was that sergeant rock because if i'm remembering correctly no sergeant did sergeant rock die i think he lived but it turns out i think that that wasn't sergeant rock i think in giffen's suicide squad that was eventually revealed that that wasn't actually uh well general rock in this in this storyline uh because good god how old would that man have been in in 2001 if he was like in his thirties in in the forties, I mean, he was looking pretty good. Is, is that's all I'm going to say about that? Yeah, well, twenty people in the JSA thinks that's implausible, don't they? <laughs> <laughs> that is very true. But they all had uh, they were all Ian Carcooled at one point. So. Uh, let's not go there. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. All right. Well, I'll, I'll share what I think was uh, the biggest deal in it, and I, I think that was the uh, I think the raw horror of Hippolytus' death, and uh, given that it was written and drawn by a man who loves Wonder Woman, um, it had a lot of power behind it. And, you know, usually when people die in events like this, they're really quite presentable. You know, you could have an open coffin, but yeah, she she got burnt up real bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, you know, it was quite horrific, and, you know, it really was... Um, you know, the horrors of war brought to life. Yeah, I, I think that was one of the things that they did well in the sp- in the spinoffs. Uh, when they were dealing directly with Our Worlds at War, I think the spinoffs did a fantastic job of a kind of exposing the war, you know, exploring the concept of that once again, the DC universe is under siege. Uh, you know, Lex brings back the concept of the All-Star Squadron, which back in 2001, because I read this fresh, I was I was well into my Superman reading experience, uh, well over a decade by this point. This was your, your Superman phase. <laughs> well, <laughs> I, I, I've never gotten out of that, uh, but but in because I'm still collecting the titles. But this was this was kind of the twilight of my Superman with quotes around my. Uh, so I, I, I will agree with you though, that her death was, was touching, but I think that is because Phil Jimenez is such a fan of Wonder Woman. It was kind of weird because I've seen him on, on Facebook in the past couple of years, not so much complaining, but, but having an issue with the fact that Wonder Woman has become such a warrior figure. Uh, especially in the adapted materials. I mean, when she was introduced in uh, Batman v. Trainwreck, she, you know, she had the sword <laughs> and the shield, and it was all about, you know, the battle and all that. And 
you know, he wanted to kind of, he was kind of more of a fan of her as the ambassador of peace, but he also drew her in her full kingdom come, hearkening to another previous episode of the series, uh, her full like kingdom come armor at one point. But man, oh God. Yeah. Hippolyta's death was just really upsetting because George Perez had done such a good job of creating that character and making her more than the blonde woman, uh, Wonder Woman goes and gets yelled at by. Uh, every once in a while and i'm sure frank will have things to say about that <laughs> yeah so it, were there any moments that really stood out for you and you know it took your breath away uh i i liked the meshing of strange visitor and superman because the art in that issue took a really weird turn uh it became more sinkavich <laughs> yes uh, uh for a couple pages and i had a problem with but at the same time found the death of Lois's father compelling because Superman had to make a choice. Uh, he had, he could either go save Diana or save Lois's dad. And he chose Diana and Lois's father died. So it was this weird thing kind of at the end where their interactions were kind of, there was like, there was a wall between them. A little bit of awkwardness. Yes. And uh, this was after, that, you know, Loeb had done the little bit of awkwardness of having Lois be replaced by the parasite for a short period of time. Uh, and even though it eventually revealed that they were very much alive, Superman thinking that Martha and John were dead was a huge deal and led to some really good moments with Supergirl, uh, who at this point was being written by Peter David and was the... Uh, fallen angel version of supergirl actually no that story had wrapped up by this point because uh, she had uh, the fallen angel had separated from her so she wasn't as powered as she had been and was wearing the costume from the animated series uh which happened right around supergirl number 50 wow i feel like we should we should invite angie at this point just to cover <laughs> yeah. yeah there's a lot of homework in this uh, event isn't there <laughs> Uh, with, so she and Spike, I mean, Buzz, uh, were kind of going around trying to search for the angel, which is, uh, why Buzz finds himself on the wrong side of the law because he actually does the right thing for once and ends up getting jailed for it. Uh, I, I recommend that Supergirl series. I know there are certain Supergirl fans that have a serious problem with it. It's one of those like dividing lines, but, uh, I, I really enjoyed it. But yeah, just, Superman Clark dealing with the fact that his parents might be dead because one of the the Pearl Harbor moment of this story is that Topeka, Kansas is pretty much obliterated, which affects the outlying areas, uh, including Smallville. This was something that Lex knew about. Lex knew this was coming because Lex had gotten the heads up from Brainiac 13 and he allowed it to happen because he knew that would be a rallying moment for all of the heroes and he could consolidate his power more efficiently. Uh, but we'll get into that a little more <laughs> when we get into the ramifications of this thing. Yeah. It's funny, though, because you're mentioning things that are in the series, but they're not quite as obvious as they ought to be. Yeah, you're. that's, I think, why the lack of a central miniseries uh, hurts this story. It's not bad, but the fact that they don't have... One writer kind of going, okay, I'm going to consolidate all of it. We're going to do the major beats of the story here. You kind of have to follow the Superman titles, which at one point would have been really, really good at doing the continued storyline over four issues. But it's just like things happen. Like the, the destruction of Topeka is a good example of that. It, it happens, but it's not the big moment, you know? Mm -hmm. It's It's mostly referred to and not directly shown really yeah well the supergirl issue is the main one that uh focuses on that and i mean i i, I must admit i have the trade so this uh the, you know this is the really thick one that compiles the two trades um and it does a good job of jumping around the place um it left out a few things and i did track some of them down on comiXology and read them all um i mean I've, this is the second time reading it and i think i enjoyed it a lot more the second time than i did the first time I think the first time I was just uh, bamboozled and go, what's going on? I don't understand. Yeah, whereas, you know, I did a bit of, you know, Googling as I went through, just, <laughs> you know, <laughs> keep track of stuff. Okay, so some events, I mean, we have different types of events. Where, you know, there's ones that just give 
uh, all the books something to do for a while, and there's the events that you know fix things that are wrong, and there's the events that launch things. Did this launch anything? Not really. <laughs> <laughs> it, it, it this was a weird time because literally like a month after, so our worlds at war took place over the summer, uh, and then you had a break in September, and then in October and November you had Joker's Last Laugh. So unlike most crossovers, uh, like company-wide crossovers, not like the big event stories, you had you didn't have that year between them. So it's just like right when we get over Imperiax trying to destroy the universe, uh, along with Brainiac 13, you have the Joker doing his thing. And that was more of a traditional crossover because it affected all the titles. Mm. This I would define this more as an occupier. Yeah. Uh, you know, I, I think it was trying to have a legacy with the death of Hippolyta and the death of Aquaman, but Aquaman's death was undone by the end of the story, essentially, and then they had the whole Obsidian Age storyline that went on in the Justice League, the JLA title after this, uh, which was also written by Joe Kelly, and Hippolyta's death was major, but that only really affected Wonder Woman's book. That didn't affect the DC universe a, a, as a whole. So it was just like once this was over, it was just like okay, let's uh, let's, uh, let's you know right, get right back to uh, what we were doing, y'all. Yeah, and uh, you know Samuel Lane's death is uh, undone by the time of New Krypton again. So yeah, and and that's after Infinite Crisis too. So you can, and it was like his death was faked, but then they just kind of forgot about that, and he had always been around uh, thanks to uh, what was that storyline called Secret Origin. Ah, uh, I, I really felt kind of undid all of that. Uh, so really, it has no impact. Uh, even the only impact I think it would have is about a year after this, Superman had a black uh, shield. The, the, the S symbol on his chest had black instead of yellow, uh, which took on a, a, another meaning as well until the, uh, what was that? Ending battle was the storyline that kind of wrapped all that up. So it's just... It, it's just, yeah, serious occupier at this point. Yeah. And uh, Manchester Black shows up in this one, fresh from being created very recently, in, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, it was about a year before this. You had Action 775. Uh, I would also add that he is TV star now, Manchester Black, <laughs> uh, since he's on Supergirl. And they're going to adapt uh, what's so funny about Truth, Justice, and the American Way in a couple of episodes, which is weird. And he basically would be killed during ending battle so it was even his return here is very short-lived yeah. uh, for about a year mm. all right well i feel like we ought to get into the scoring because we could go down this rabbit hole for quite a long time and i mm -hmm. and that's where you live in these rabbit holes i understand so uh why don't we play your promo and then we'll come back and start the scoring hey mike Shaq, what, what are you doing in my house? I, I had a key made, but that's not important. Anyway, I just had a great idea for a trailer for that cute little network you do. The, the Fortress of Bailey Toot Podcasting Network? Yeah, that's the one. It's adorable. I love it. I mean, look at you, like with the network and stuff. Thanks, I, I, I think. Anyway, you know how people sometimes advertise something by, like, being extreme and suggesting that you just might die if you don't buy, like, a particular product or something? Yeah, I, I believe those people are called sadists. Sadists? That's one way you could say it. Or guy with a marketing degree. Kind of the same thing. Anyway, we could record a promo where I ask you something like, Mike, do you know who didn't listen to the Fortress of Bailey 2 Podcasting Network? Who? Gwen Stacy. Really? You know who else didn't listen to it? Who? Thomas and Martha Wayne. The Waynes. And Uncle Ben. Not the rice. Uncle Ben. And the entire planet of Krypton, except those that survived. What about Bucky or Jason Todd? Ooh, that's genius. Okay, we'll say they didn't listen, and then Superboy Prime punched a wall, and then they listened, and they were brought back to life. I guess we could also say that Aunt May subscribes and unsubscribes all the time. 
I love it. I love it. Now you're catching on. I'm not doing that, Shag. I'm not going to suggest that people will die if they don't listen to the Fortress of Bailey-Tude podcasting network, which hosts such shows as From Crisis to Crisis, Overlook Dark Knight, Views from the Long Box, It All Comes Back to Superman, and Bailey's Batman Podcast, and that they can find the network at www.fortressofbailey2.com. Are you sure? I mean, I do have like a marketing degree and stuff. I'm, I'm pretty smart. No. Can I at least be in the trailer? Yes. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network. The repository of podcasts produced and hosted or co-hosted by Michael Bailey. Head on over to www.fortressofbailey2.com to download the shows directly. You can also find a master feed of all shows by searching for Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network on iTunes or your favorite podcatcher, or you can subscribe to the shows individually. The Fortress of Baileytude Podcasting Network does not suggest that not listening to any of these shows will prove fatal, nor does it endorse surreptitiously making a key to a friend's house for the purposes of busting in and suggesting ideas for podcast trailers. Music in this trailer by Kevin McLeod. Okay, so now we're getting into the scoring. So the way this works is uh, Mike and I, we are full OCD people, but we need a semi-OCD person to give us the 20 points we need to get a score out of 100. So uh, we give four parameters that come to 40 points total if we gave it 10 out of 10 for everything. So that gives us 80, but uh, we have Laurel Mountainflower from... Uh, well, she's working with the Right On Network now doing the Huntress podcast, so and that's, that's great. So Laurel will be contributing her scores and we'll listen to that after this so uh, ventiness so i gave this a eight i i was pleasantly surprised by how eventy it was i seem to remember it being very superman centric but really it does have the scope of the dc universe in it um the fact that you've got young justice and they do the traditional visit to apocalypse that every team must do at some point in their <laughs> career um so, you know, that's in this book. Yeah, it covers everyone. The JSA are there in a very... Uh, Jeff Johns wants everyone to know how cool the JSA uh, moment. So I'm giving it an 8. What about you, Mike? Uh, I gave it an 8 as well because it did have scope. Uh, it didn't have the scope, say, of, like, Invasion, which is kind of, I think, the event you could most compare this to. But it was big. It affected everybody. I mean, not all of them were worth it. I, I, I think, I think you could totally skip the Green Lantern special altogether and not really miss anything. There's a lot of nudity in it. So. Yeah. Well, of course, because why not? Uh, that bothered me actually on the reread more than it did when it first <laughs> came out. I guess because I was so used to it. It was like so omnipresent back in uh, the, the late nineties. But yeah, they, they, they like to show some jade. Uh, but no, it, I, I would definitely give it an eight. It's not like uh, worth a ten, but uh, it's definitely up there. Yeah. And what about the writing? I'm actually going to give the writing a nine because you had some serious heavy hitters on this story. I love Jeff Loeb's run of Superman. Uh, he was my favorite Superman writer of this era. Uh, Joe Kelly was also kind of at uh, you know kind of on his game. Joe Casey and Mark Schultz they they really did a good job with the Superman books. But you had you know, you mentioned Jeff Johns, who was not quite Jeff Johns yet, uh, but he was getting there. Uh, and you had Peter David and Phil Jimenez. So it's just like, and, and, and as I mentioned, Jed Winnick, it was a unnecessary crossover, but it was a well-written unnecessary crossover. Yeah, yeah. I went uh, seven on the writing. I, I think it, it has some really strong moments. I I think where it lets everything down is it doesn't put in enough exposition. I mean, they, they uh, this is a big event. So they're saying, okay, people are going to jump on board and read this, but they really don't give everything that everyone needs to know at any point. And particularly when you say there's a secret files there, and you, traditionally secret files help you by saying this is the deal with everything, these are all the players, and this that secret files doesn't do any of that. Um, you know, it kind of introduces the general Zod concept. Well, that's another weird thing we haven't talked about. Um, but, yeah, I, I thought, you know, there were some decisions in the writing that made it a bit lacking for me. So, yeah, seven. All right. That's fair. <laughs> 
Yeah, but the art, um, the art is a better than I remember. It's a real powerhouse art teams in this. So, um, you know, I, I think I'm on the side. I really like Ed McGuinness. I think I, I fall down that side of the argument. And I, I thought the scale of the, the fights was epic and the, you know, the big moments were really big. So, uh, yeah, so I'm giving it an eight for art. Where do you go with the art? I actually give it a seven because despite the fact that I, I, I do love Ed McGuinness and you have Mike Raringo drawing Superman where how could you go wrong on that? Uh, and, and Kano, who uh, apparently his hands were not bruised sufficiently fighting Sub-Zero uh, <laughs> for the championship. It's the, la- it's the last Mortal Kombat joke, folks, I promise. But I, I what my problem with the art was... God, I forgot how the early 2000s DC Universe looked. It was, oh man, it was jarring. I mean, you like Todd Nyack on uh, Young Justice is amazing because I loved that title. But like the Superboy book, I was just like, can you, do you want to be anime or are you, what are you trying to do here? So that's why overall I thought the art was a seven, even though you had some really standout issues in there. Like Phil Jimenez. Phil, it was funny. You read all of these books, and most of them are really kind of, I don't want to say breezy reads, but they go on at a good clip. And then you hit Phil Jimenez, and it's like, okay, guys, settle down, roll up your sleeves, grab a cup of tea or coffee, uh, because you, you're going to be reading some stuff here, which is great. I'm not complaining, especially when compared to books of today. But wow, he crammed a lot of gram in there. Uh, and it, it all looked great, but it wasn't, but the, it, the specials were where the art was just like, eh, okay, I, I, I have lost my taste for this. <laughs> what about the Impact Legacy? I gave it a seven too, because as we said, not a whole lot rolled out from this. Uh, the, the big deaths, three, two out of the three big deaths were completely undone. Uh, I guess technically, Hippolyta's death was undone in the New 52, but at least that kind of stuck up to that point. Uh, but really, for the DC Universe as, as a whole, there really wasn't anything. This didn't launch a new title. It didn't form a new team. It was just like everybody just kind of moved on. I think the impact of this happened uh, because of 9-11 in, in a very, very weird way. Uh, because, as we said, this this took place over the summer of 2001, so the aftermath issues were really hitting in September. And as I am sure most of the people listening to this know, on September 11th, 2001, there was a major terrorist attack here in the United States. Terrorists uh, flew planes into the World Trade Centers, uh, the two towers of the World Trade Center, which caused them to collapse. There was a crash in western Pennsylvania, and the Pentagon was attacked. And I like to mention the Pennsylvania and the Pentagon thing because they seem to get lost when people talk about 9-11. So 9-11 was Tuesday, 9-12 is Wednesday, which is the day uh, comic books come out. And you have an issue of Adventures of Superman number 596, which features rather prominently a Twin Towers type building in Metropolis in flames. Yeah. This made the news. I have the article uh, from the, that, that was run in the Atlanta paper, because uh, I live in the Atlanta area, uh, but it was an AP story. And I remember at that time, I actually worked for the AJC uh, delivering papers to stores and convenience stores and stuff. And we were sitting there, I was reading the article, and all of the people I was working with were complaining. They're like, well, how could they do that? So then I had to give everybody a crash course on how comic books are created. <laughs> I'm like, guys, this was probably written four months ago. Two months at the latest. I mean, this was this was they could not have pulled it in time. They yeah. these they, they would have been delivered to stores on nine eleven. Yeah. So for Superman, his you know they eventually found Jonathan. Uh, Martha was found almost right away. Jonathan had a had a problem, and he had the whole black on his S for a thing, which I think also kind of had a nine eleven feeling to it, but. 9-11, because it's a major event, has a lot of conspiracy theories. And one of them is that uh, President uh, George W. Bush uh, knew about the attack and let it happen, which I don't think happened at all. I think that's uh, Alex Jones' territory. But in the comics, he did. So it's this weird kind of real world in the comic book world kind of butting heads here, 
where you have a president, uh, president Lex, uh, basically allowing a, a, a major city in the country that he is the head of get destroyed for his own personal gain. Uh, and eventually this, this is kind of what wraps up Jeff Loeb's run on Superman. So for Superman, it had a lot of impact. Uh, for the DCU, not so much. For me personally, I had a letter printed in Superboy number 96 from this storyline. So uh-huh. that was that was my big thing for this. <laughs> All right. Well, the impact on this one and the legacy, it, it seems like there was a conspiracy. You're talking about conspiracy. It seems like there was almost a conspiracy to make this story go away. So, you know, they released the trades, they released the big book, and then um, Jeff Johns seems to make it his business to undermine everything that happens in this story um, one way or another um, because he, you know, as you said, he got involved with Superman and uh, did the secret origin story bled it all up to New Krypton, and just every single thing that stuck around in this book seemed to be undone deliberately. Um, And now it's like, this is a pretty good story, and I'm sure um, DC could put out a complete hardcover omnibus and it would sell gangbusters, uh, but they don't. You know, it's like it wants to, you know, they want to forget about this one and they want to forget about this era because it's not the era of Jeff Johns being in charge of stuff. But, I mean, that's my feeling. No, I'll agree with that. I, I think an omnibus of this would probably sell rather well. You could even include the Joe Casey written Superman Batman storyline uh, that came out 2009, 2010, yeah, somewhere yeah. around there. That really had jack all to do with our worlds at war. Uh, but still, they, they, they say it's part of it. And I think it would make a rather handsome book, but it's a Superman book. And uh, speaking of conspiracies and tinfoil hats, I'm very much of the feeling that DC likes to underplay Superman as much as humanly possible. So unless it's a story where he dies and comes back, they really don't care. Yeah. So for that reason, I'm thinking the Impact Legacy is about a five, you know, because I think it it mattered at the time, but uh, it didn't matter a few years later. So anyway, uh, let's hear from Laurel and see what she had to say. Hello, I'm Laurel, also known on Twitter as Mountainflower1. I'm here to give you my semi-OCD scores for the DC event, Our Worlds at War. Before we get started, I just want to say I have a real soft spot for this event. I don't remember exactly where and when I learned about it, but it was probably through the comic shop news. That was a little newspaper you pick up for free at the comic shop. Anyway, I knew some ongoing issues of Wonder Woman and Batman were going to be involved. Plus, the JSA, JLA, and Green Lantern were having one-shots, and I was already following those. But the Our Worlds at War was really supposed to be kind of a Superman event, so I hesitated. I've not read a whole lot of Superman before this, so I waited until some of the issues had come out, and I could flip through them and decide whether I wanted or needed to read them. After some hemming and hawing and probably picking a book off the shelf, flipping through it, putting it back, picking it back up again, that kind of thing, I finally decided, yeah, I want the series. I was trying to figure out how to put all four Superman titles on my pull list when the very nice folks at my local comic shop, Heroes Aren't Hard to Find, they told me I could just put the event name down and they would pull the main event books and the one-shots. Who knew? Okay. With all that understood, here's my scores. Eventiness. Our Worlds at War ran through all four Superman titles. There were crossover tie-in issues. There were a bunch of one-shots. That makes me think it's, yeah, pretty big event. But it really is Superman-centric, which takes it down a couple points. Also, some of the titles did their one-shots and then just went along with their regularly scheduled storylines. So... Not eventy enough to affect them. That brings the eventiness down to a seven. Writing. For writing and art, I'm reviewing the triangle numbered Superman titles. They were supposed to be the real quote unquote event issues. And also, aside from Wonder Woman, I couldn't dig out all the one shots scattered throughout my many comic book boxes. The age old conundrum of where do I file this? has struck again. When I separated the one-shots into their other boxes, thinking, oh, I can pull these anytime I want to read this event altogether, I had a lot less boxes back then. Anyway, 
The Superman issues are good in and of themselves, and there is a through line. This happens, then that happens, then this happens, but the jump between issues is really jarring. I kept looking back and forth between issues, trying to make sure I hadn't skipped an issue or something. And there are good emotional beats here. Wonder Woman's mother dying, Superman losing it for emotional trauma, Lois's father dies, Strange Visitor dies. There's the scenes with Luther and Lena. The overall event has a nice big feel. There's lots of fighting and running around and big characters pop up, a few twists. It really held my interest. But it's not seamlessly put together. And I sometimes had trouble telling what was going on. You really needed those Wonder Woman issues to help put this thing together towards the end. Then there's the Jeff Loeb issues. He kept trying to use these war speeches in text boxes throughout his issues, and they were just annoying. I mean, why? So I just started ignoring them. So with this, the the jarring transitions and the sometimes confusing details, it looks like the writing is a six. And that feels so low to me, considering I like this event. So you know what? I'm going to declare a reviewer's prerogative, toss in those Wonder Woman issues, and give this a seven. You can make of that what you will. Art and covers. I don't think the covers are very remarkable. They're they're good. They're just not anything spectacular. The interiors, however, this is where our worlds at Roar really shines. Ed McGinnis, Mike Waringo, and Kano use these big, bright, cartoony styles that really fit Superman, and they blend together so well. We've got big action scenes and emotional facial expressions and everything in between. It's fun, and fun is a big thing that I want in any event. There's just one problem. The Doug Mank issues. It's not bad art. In fact, it's quite the opposite. It's really good, wonderfully detailed, more realistic. There's darker coloring, which suits a book about war and death, which, you know, is kind of the theme of this event. But it doesn't blend with the other artists and their books, and that is a real problem. So I'm bumping the art down to a nine. Impact and legacy. This is the weakest part of our worlds at war. There were impacts to this event, the follow-up on, various future titles did that. What happened to the Kents, Lois and Clark's marriage took a hit, Hippolyta is dead, and Aquaman of all and all Atlantis are missing. But once these are addressed in the next couple of years, no one seems to mention Empirex anymore. I'm not even sure it's mentioned how Hippolyta died when they bring her back several years later. And you knew they were going to bring her back. I mean, it's Greek mythology mixed with comic books. I mean, yeah, they're going to bring her back. Okay, so after cleaning up some plot points, bringing back Atlantis, that kind of thing, our worlds at war doesn't have much staying power. So, a five. No matter what, I still had a blast reading Our Worlds at War again. I didn't know many of the characters or what was happening in the Superman titles previous to this event, but I liked it then and I like it now. So, I don't know, maybe that's just me. To review, that's Eventing is 7, Writing 7, Art 9, and Legacy 5 for a grand total of 28. And I guess you'll have to cut that down to 14 since I'm only a semi-OCD. Let me wrap up with a big thank you to Paul for inviting me to be part of our Worlds at War episode. And I'm curious to see what this one lands at. Okay, thanks for that, Laurel. So now it's the hardest part of the show for me where I have to do some maths. And (laughs) all right, Michael, we've got your scores, which bring it to... You gave it 31 out of 40. You really liked it. And I gave it 28 out of 40. And Laurel gave it 28. And we have it down to 14. So we add all those together. And it looks like we get 73. 73. Wow, that's quite a good score. That's um, quite respectable for this event. Yeah, I was about to say that's uh, compared to some of the others. That's uh, that's uh, doing really well. Yeah. Okay. So, Michael, where can people find you if they uh, want to hear more of your podcast stylings or some of your witty banter? 
which was actually the name of a character in the Superman books in the 90s. He was a talk show host <laughs> named Witty Banter. The uh, the Fortress of Bailitude, uh, fortressofbailitude.com. Uh, it's home of the Fortress of Bailitude podcasting network, uh, which I believe you heard an ad for. That's the home of the shows that I do. It's just basically a central hub. Uh, where I put everything now to make things easier on me. The two main shows that are continuing uh, with any kind of regularity uh, are From Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast, which we've been doing, I've been doing with Jeff Taylor uh, for, God, we're coming up on 10 years this year. Good Lord. Uh, We're about halfway through our mandate, which is to look at all of the post-crisis Superman books from Man of Steel number one in 86 to Adventures of Superman 649 in 2006. So eventually we will be giving this probably 50 times more coverage than we're doing right here. So uh, I I appreciate that I got to lay some of the groundwork of that because we're going to probably do a deeper dive. Uh, I also do the Overlooked Dark Knight with Andrew Leyland, where we t- look at overlooked Batman stories. Everybody wants to talk about Killing Joke and Dark Knight Returns, and we want to talk about animated books and stuff from the late 70s. Though later this year, we will be doing more of a Batman at 80 celebration, kind of looking at overlooked stories uh, or stories we feel are overlooked from all eras. Uh, so that's going to be fun. And you can find past episodes of Bailey's Batman podcast, and it all comes back to Superman, and views from the long box there as well. Okay. And if you want to hear about the looked Batman stories, then just listen to DCOCD. <laughs> exactly. All right. Well, um, thanks, everyone, for coming, and thanks for listening. And, yeah, thanks, Laurel, for your contribution. And if you want to get in touch with us, you can uh, send us an email at dcocdcast at gmail.com. And, of course, we're on the Twitter at dcocdcast. And I think we're on Facebook at the Waiting for Doom site. So uh, check us out there. Um, thanks, Mike. Stay safe. No, I'm, I'm going to do my best. You, t- you too, uh, <laughs> from what's going on with you right now <laughs> in your neck of the woods. Yep. And we will be back next time with uh, the Joker's Last Laugh, which was the <laughs> uh, the second event of that year and one event too many, as far as I can see. Ooh, man, I feel bad for you talking about that one. That was a rough one. <laughs> oh, the covers. The covers are really good. Anyway, <laughs> that's all we've got time for. We'll see you next time on DCOCD. Christmas